Welcome, listeners, to a new episode of FF Plus, our spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, discussion, interviews, and much more. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me for tonight's reviews are Patrick. Hey, everyone. And Kales. Good evening. Also, my new puppy, Gimli, in the background, is probably going to make an appearance. He's going a little crazy right now, and you're likely to hear some squeaking and some barking as he is completely unsupervised for the duration of this episode. So I apologize up front, but that's just something that I'm not going to deal with trying to remove. <laughs> not at this stage in his life. Maybe later. I feel sorry for the cats right now because I'm not there to protect them. <laughs> and he is just running rampant. Running! Running, guys! Speaking of running... <laughs> you see how I did that segue? Isn't that great? Uh, the first film, <laughs> first film we're going to talk about tonight is called Run. It stars Sarah Paulson and Kiera Allen. It is written by Anish Shigante and Sev Ohanian and directed by Anish Shigante, who formerly created the film Searching, which we're all huge fans of. It is about a homeschooled teenager who begins to suspect that her mother is keeping a dark secret from her. And that's pretty much all of the synopsis that the film gives you going in. So, Patrick, we'll start with you. A couple things that you liked. What did you think about this? Well, I'm going to say as a general like for all four of these, I liked not knowing what they were all about. I mean, I got the synopses, obviously, from when we get the screeners. But I try to go in blind with a lot of these because it's usually an unknown and I want to kind of temper my expectations. That being said, I really enjoyed this. I think it's been a while since we've had what I consider a really good suspense thriller. And the twists and turns in this story felt somewhat familiar, but also pretty fresh. I thought Sarah Paulson's acting was really, really good. I have not seen her in this kind of role and it was really surprising and really refreshing to see her in this. I also liked Kira Allen. I thought that they had great chemistry as a mother-daughter. And the way the film kind of plays itself out is one of those things where you're sort of aware of what's going on. You get some reveals early on and you're like, okay, where can they go from here? And then they go someplace where you're like, oh, I didn't expect that. But it wasn't so far out of left field for me that I didn't enjoy it. So I had a really good time with this one. Kales, what about you? How'd it land for you? Um, verbatim, whatever what Patrick said, I agree with everything. Sarah Paulson, Kiara Allen, they were both terrific in this film. Um, Sarah Paulson has made a name for herself playing these kind of villainous roles. Like at the beginning, she portrays herself as like somebody quiet and somebody who's innocent and who, and you, who deserves compassion, but then towards over the film you start to get like this monstrous side of her that comes out and it's gradual the the great thing about this film is that the pacing is is done very well for a short one time you know it's better that the film kind of like carries itself in this little nice package and it doesn't go over too long the thrills are kind of they're built up a little bit gradually and then we get a great twist ending towards the end um overall i would like to say that it's nice that um you know, Searching is one of my favorite films from a couple of years ago. And it's nice to have a great follow-up. And, you know, how you pronounce his name, I don't want to butcher it. Anish Shiganti. Yes, Anish Shiganti. It's nice that he's a director who avoided the sophomore slump. Um, I would recommend this for a date night for anybody or anybody who wants to rent something on Redbox and just tune in real quick. 
Yeah, I agree completely with that, Coles. I love the fact that he is coming at filmmaking with a modern day Hitchcock approach. And I think that that's what I loved about this the most was just the way in which he crafts this puzzle box where each reveal is a new question. And he is really masterful about creating suspense, even when it feels like this is a pretty formulaic film. And in the end, it, it's fairly standard and not that surprising. But the way we get from point A to the end, point Z, I guess, or whatever, is interesting all along the way. It's always discovering a new little trick. And just the way that Shiganti reveals those things is unique. It's special. He has a talent for crafting tension with very minimalistic filmmaking approaches that I certainly appreciate. And I think that Paulson is really good. I think Alan is really good. Um, I think the score is really good. And I think that it just in general, the, the fact that this got made in, it's so simplistic. It's basically one house and like one pharmacy store and maybe a couple shots on a road. And that's, you know, maybe a hospital, but there's like, there's so few locations in this film, but it feels like the house goes from this small thing to this bigger and bigger and bigger thing. It's not like it's a mansion or anything. It's a regular sized old two story home, but it feels like it's getting bigger and bigger. So it, it makes it almost seem like your location is expanding. And just, he just has a really great way of doing that. And I am such a fan of directors that make movies that are 90 minutes long. Like <laughs> this is, you said it, it's short, it's tight, it's in and out, it makes its point and it lets you move on and get a good night's sleep. So that's something to be praised in my opinion. Patrick, was there anything about this one that turned you off or that you didn't really like? If there was, it was really nitpicky stuff. There were a couple of moments that felt a little far-fetched with what the narrative was doing. And there were some moments where we kind of got mansplained a bit, where I wanted to kind of figure it out myself and some exposition or dialogue kind of gave that to me. But outside of that, no, I didn't really have anything that bothered me. Coles, what about you? For me, while it does do fresh things with the evil parent trope that you see in horror films, at the same time, at the end of it, I really didn't find anything that really wowed me. And I, if you want to call that negative, I mean, you can call it negative. But for me, I don't think it's a negative. I would just say it's just something that is good for what it does. It's fun, and there's nothing wrong with a film being fun. But I can't really put it into that great category. Um, but it's very good. I guess that's the worst thing I can say about it. Well, so far, so good. I I'm going to be a little more hard on it. I don't feel like this has really anything memorable about it. It's well-made. It is satisfying. Like you said, I, I would definitely recommend people see this, watch it at home, check it out or whatever. But I, I forgot about it almost immediately. I am not a fan of the ending. Unless you mentioned as being something that you liked the twist ending. I didn't at all. I, I didn't think that it was... I just thought it was kind of silly, honestly, and a little, yeah, in your face. Is that what you're, is that what you're poking at me with your knife, Patrick? Like a little, like a, <laughs> a little poke. Like it didn't, I, I, I it, the ending felt like a jab. Okay. Like almost, I don't want to call it, 
if I use a word, it's going to kind of give away too much. So yeah, I'm just going to go be careful with that, that. But yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I, I would agree with that. It just comes kind of, I don't know how to say it either, but it's didn't satisfy me as much as the rest of the film did. Um, and so there with that, you know, I, I thought it was fine and a decent follow up and again showcases the strengths of the director and him as an, and as a writing team along with his partner. And I'm still excited to see anything that he does next. But I think that searching kind of puts it on a level, puts him on a level rather that makes this feel so far below that, that it just, it, it increases the gap when you're looking at that via the different perspective of, of searching in mind. I would say I'm not necessarily feeling it <laughs> for those reasons. I gave it a positive review and I would watch it. I just don't think that it's anything super special. And I think that if you have to make cuts and make choices in the films that you're going to see and not see due to time constraints, I wouldn't say that this is one that I would necessarily push people and encourage them to go see. But if you've got time on a Friday night and you're bored, you'll have a decent time with it. That's my take. What about you, Patrick? I'm going to say opposite of that. I think it's a well-made film. I think it's worth your time. And at 90 minutes, that should be well worth anybody's time. I think it's a great thriller. Again, I think we don't have a lot of these. And uh, giving yourself an opportunity to enjoy two great actors doing some pretty fun stuff. It may not be memorable, but it's a heck of a ride. Coles, how about you? I would agree with both of you guys that it's not anything memorable or anything that you would want to really go back to for second servings. But it's one of the best films where... Say, for instance, one day you can't really find anything to watch and you're just scrolling down on a streaming service and you just come across this film, you read a little synopsis, and then you're interested in it. It's one of the best um, Saturday afternoon films, as I like to call it. Good enough. It will be available on Hulu beginning on November 20th, so listeners, feel free to check that out. Next up is Leap of Faith. This is... As it says about itself, it is a lyrical and spiritual cinematic essay on The Exorcist. Uh, it explores the uncharted depths of William Friedkin's mind's eye, the nuances of his filmmaking process, and the mysteries of faith and fate that have shaped his life and filmography. It's directed by documentarian Alexander O. Philippe, and it essentially is just William Friedkin talking. It's literally him being interviewed, but you're not hearing the questions. He's just speaking and expositing and he's running through not only the making of the exorcist and the backgrounds that you might get from like a making of documentary but also just lots of little stories about his filmmaking process and his goals in how he makes movies in general along the way patrick what did you think about this one well, as someone who I confess has not seen The Exorcist, I found this incredibly intriguing because of the fact that whether or not it spoils the movie for you, that wasn't the point. It assumes that you've seen the film. And so having that in mind, what it does is it opens up this avenue for Friedkin to talk about his methods, to talk about his inspirations and what he took away from this, how it influenced other films that he made and how other films influence the films that he makes. And so it's really a documentary about him, in a sense, which I think is very different. Because when we talk about movie documentaries behind the scenes, we like to see the trivia. We like to see what fleshed out and made the IMDb trivia page. 
this doesn't do that. It really does kind of inspire filmmakers to figure out what it is that makes them tick and how they're going to incorporate that into their selected works. One of the things I really pulled from this, if I had a one word takeaway, was unapologetic. I love the fact that he doesn't, he doubles down on his methods, that he says, I do it this way, and this is the reason why. And he doesn't slam other directors for doing it differently, particularly on takes. He does things in one take, whereas someone like Stanley Kubrick, who he admires greatly, is not that way. And so we get a sense of kind of an understanding that it's okay to be your own director and you have to be your own director in order to be successful at this. And I think this documentary really sold it. What about you, Kalas? Um, I agree. This documentary feels to me that it doubles as a interview into an artist and understanding his creative process, but also as an audio commentary for the exorcist itself. Um, the one thing that I love uh, other than just watching great films is learning how great films were made. I'm very interested in how a director is able to create something from his mind and then put it to the page and is able to translate translate that on screen is is very magical and hearing um hearing william just talk about little pieces of his career and the inspirations how he became to be a director i love those moments and also just the manner of detail he was able to put into the exorcist itself i would have to say patrick that you know if you have any reservations don't about the exorcist it's, it's a disturbing film but it's really good and this film like goes into the concepts of faith and you know fate and you know spontaneity and also sometimes just um religious religious symbolism that is going beyond the exorcist and just mainly incorporating a lot of real world details that feel very authentic and it makes the exorcist a more special film in my opinion watching this documentary and i would recommend it to anybody who is interested in becoming a filmmaker. I mean, William Freakin, I mean, he's one of the best examples of a director to follow. Aaron, what about you? Were there things about this documentary, Aaron, that you enjoyed that stood out? I love the description in the synopsis that says it's lyrical and spiritual, because that is exactly how I felt about it. There is that great score that is kind of going on in the background that I thought added a lot to this. And I love that they called it an essay because it felt like an essay. It's literally like a blend of what you might see in a visual essay in something like every painting has a wait. That's not, what was it called? Every frame, every frame of painting. That's what it is. It feels like something you might see in a video of every frame has a painting mixed with a making of documentary on the special features of a Blu-ray disc, right? It's those two things put together. It's a feeling, it's a commentary track, but it's not as specific to the movie. And I mean, I love the film. It's one of my favorite horror films of all time. It was one of those movies that was a classic I'd never gotten to. I finally decided to check it out and it blew me away on first viewing, which is very rare. And I learned so much. And I, and I think, Hearing Friedkin talk about exploring faith and fate through this film, and specifically him coming at this from an angle of not being a religious person, was incredibly interesting to me. Um, it, it held my attention. It captivated me all the way throughout. And totally, you know, some of the background stories about specifically Max von Sydow, one of the primary actors, 
being at a crisis because he didn't believe in God at one point during the film. Those are the kind of things like I want to know about a movie that elevates something that I already find to be a great piece of art into something that is really special. Uh, and, and I'm sure all movies have stories that can be like that and that are similar to that. But, you know, he talks at one point about punching an actor in order to get them to cry. And I found that fascinating. And he actually has the foresight to say and follow that up with. He says the actor thanked him for it because the actor needed to get to that place. But he also says, I understand that that wouldn't fly today, nor would he probably be comfortable with it. And I thought that just gives you a sense of who William Friedkin is and the way that his mind worked. You know, he's able to process the differences in generations. And as time has passed, the way that the industry has changed. So there's stuff like that that's sprinkled in. It has nothing to do with necessarily The Exorcist itself as a story. Uh, I just thought it was really, really great. Good stuff. Well, what about dislikes? Was there anything, Colesse, that made you kind of go, eh, it doesn't sound like it, but I wanted to make sure. I would say the nitpick is that um, usually these interview documentaries where there's a person sitting in just one room and just talking over, I, for me, I would like to see them do more than just that as far as following a director's career. But other than that, no dislikes at all. Yeah, I think for me, I didn't find much at all that I disliked about it. It's subjective at this point. It's the fact that I'm not part of that crew that has the history of watching the movie. So I think if the nitpick is anywhere, it's on me for not having that experience. Because I think overall, this documentary is probably one of the most fresh that I've seen in the way in which it's done. And not really to counterpoint what you were saying, Coles, but I'd like to see more of these, more of these directors who are sitting down talking about their monumental film, the film that made them who they are, and to talk about how that influenced other things. So the moment we get a Christopher Nolan documentary like this, I can't wait to see what film they're actually centering around to talk about him. Won't matter because you won't be able to hear it. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> or to use, or to go back and forth, back and forth in time. Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> just they, that should happen actually, just out of fun for like poking fun at himself. I didn't have any real dislikes. I think if I maybe the two things I might say is that one, if you really don't enjoy this style, which Coles mentioned can also be something that not people don't necessarily gravitate toward. It feels long. It could feel long. I was riveted by it, and and I wish that I had the time to go rewatch The Exorcist right back to back and along with it. I think that that would be a really good experience. I didn't get to it, but I think that would be great. But I think that because of its style, if you aren't connecting with this in the first 15, 20 minutes stylistically, then you're in for a long haul because it's just very meditative that whole way through. The other thing is I've been told, and I don't know this for a fact, but I trust the sources that I got this from, that most of what Friedkin talks about here is already available in the plethora of special features and interviews he's done on previous releases for The Exorcist, on books, and such and so forth. So this may not be new information to superfans of The Exorcist. It may just be a different presentation style consolidating some of that information. So they may not get nearly as much out of it as someone like myself did, but that's really all I got negative to say. So I guess for me, I'm going to have to go with definitely feeling it on this one because this is a must watch. I think if you are a fan of filmmaking as a process, 
Certainly, if you're a fan of The Exorcist or a fan of William Friedkin and his work at all. So if you just enjoyed good documentaries, pretty much this is a must-see for you if you fall in those categories. Patrick? Yeah, this is definitely feeling it for me. I think it's one of those that if you haven't seen the movie, obviously it's one that will give you a lot of insight into the film itself. But it serves, uh, to your point, Aaron, as a Cliff Notes version of the things that may already be known, but you haven't gotten a chance to check those things out. So I would say definitely check it out. What about you, Coles? Well, this is the easy feeling for me. If you value, you know, learning about someone's creative process and, you know, learning more information about how to become a director and a filmmaker, then this is definitely right up your alley. All right, so three feeling it. You can see this on Shutter exclusively on November 19th. So it's right there, accessible for everyone. And if you have not used it yet, Shutter, I believe, has a $5 free, not $5. I think they have a free trial, actually, but it's also like five bucks for a month of Shutter. So it's similar to Apple TV Plus, where, you know, they've got some decent content on there, and you could probably make out having a great month of catching up with the stuff that's on there for one $5 a month subscription. And then you can just drop it. Yeah, One Cut of the Dead, which Patrick and I did some bonus content on and is available now because all of Feelin' Films' Patreon bonus content is available two weeks after we do it. So it's there. But yeah, One Cut of the Dead is available on Shutter as well. Third up in our lineup is Sound of Metal, starring Riz Ahmed and Olivia Cook. It is written and directed by Darius Martyr who wrote The Place Beyond the Pines, and this is actually his directorial debut. Synopsis. During a series of adrenaline-fueled one-night gigs, itinerant punk metal drummer Ruben, played by Ahmed, begins to experience intermittent hearing loss. When a specialist tells him his condition will rapidly worsen, he thinks his music career, and with it his life, is over. His bandmate and girlfriend, Lou, played by Cook, checks the recovering heroin addict into a secluded, sober house for the deaf in hopes it will prevent a relapse and help him learn to adapt to his new situation. But after being welcomed into a community that accepts him just as he is, Reuben has to choose between his equilibrium and the drive to reclaim the life he once knew. Kles, I'm going to kick it to you first on this one. What did you think about Sound of Metal? Well, for one, Riz Ahmed, he's one of my new favorite actors. Um, He first impressed me when he was in Dan Gearroy's Nightcrawler a few years ago, and I've always been excited to see what his next moves were going to be, and this is another great performance for him. I mean, he really commands the film throughout, and he's able to showcase, you know, um, a protagonist who is going through a struggle of having to have a life rebirth. You know, someone who is a fan of music and then realizes that their hearing is becoming close to death, and then realizing that they can't follow their dream anymore and having to create a new path. I mean, it's, it's, it's a redemptive film. It's very sad. It's very gloomy. I mean, there are sometimes I had to get the Kleenex up to my eyes, but I mean, towards the end, you get a lot of hope. And it also, it doesn't treat, you know, people who do have hearing disabilities as having a handicap. It shows how these people are able to live strong, how they're able to continue to carve out a new path in their life, you know, and see themselves as just being normal, like, you know, not even paying attention to them being deaf as anything to be worried about. Um, Strong film. Um, it keeps saying that this was released in 2019, but for me, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it right here in 2020. And this for me is one of the best ten films of 2020 for me. Wow, strong words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll co-sign that. 
to Les. And I'll say that this movie feels a lot like a documentary as well, because we're on this journey with this character and his deteriorating hearing. What I think stood out from a technical standpoint was the sound mixing, the ability for us as an audience to really sense that isolation of what it might feel like or sound like or experience what it's like to lose your hearing or to not hear clearly. There were moments early on where he was doing things that I would do after I came out of a pool or after I woke up and I'd slept on my ear too long or something was going on where I had gunk in my ear and was doing things to say, wait, what's going on here? And that moment where you feel like this is not changing, we got a lot of that. But to your point, Coles, I also love the fact that there is hope in this film. It doesn't feel like Manchester by the Sea, where we're just constantly being bombarded with sad, 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 sad. I need hope in my films. I need to be able not to feel good necessarily, but to feel hopeful. And Sound of Metal left me feeling that way. And it's one that I, I couldn't recommend higher for a 2020 film, especially in the year that we're having right now. Well, I like it quite a bit as well. Riz Ahmed's performance definitely is the standout. He's the lead and he carries this and his acting is important because of the way in which he's portraying a character who is without all of his senses. And he's giving you a look into what it's like to experience this loss and deal with it both from a physical, tangible standpoint and then also emotionally and psychologically all at the same time. He's incredible. Almost as good as he was in Venom. Um, no, I'm kidding. But he is really, really great. And I like you, Kales, I think he's one of my favorite current actors and someone that is definitely on my radar to watch anything he puts out next at this point because his dramatic stuff is phenomenal. The sound design is the star of the show. And this is a film that is likely going to be nominated. And I would say probably at this point in the year should be the shoe in to win sound mixing or whatever they're calling it now at the Oscars, if they're even still doing it. I don't even know what's happening with that anymore because they keep talking about getting rid of them, which would be stupid because this is the exact reason why the award needs to exist, guys. The sound design in this film, the way in which it is used, it'll actually throw you off at times because I was like, is my volume working? I mean, I was literally like moving the volume up and down at times trying to figure out like, is this my TV? What's happening here? But the film is created in a way that it moves in and out of sound to help you experience what the character is experiencing as he's losing his hearing. And it's very effective in my opinion. And I think that it is somewhat, it could be called a gimmick, but I loved it. And it worked in a really big way for me in this movie. I think between the sound design and his performance, they combine to make this such an empathy-inducing experience. And so that's one of the reasons I loved it. Coles, was there anything you didn't like about this one? You seem like it, you said top 10 of the year for you, so... So you know that means I have no qualms or any defects about this film. This film is not perfect, but it's great. And good and great are separate, in a separate category, so... Patrick, what about you? Well, I, I think that... When we talk about the way in which we perceive deaf people, this serves as an education. And sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. And one of the things that took me a bit getting used to and believing 
was the fact that those who were hard of hearing or deaf could talk. I want to, I don't want to say normally because that makes it sound like they're abnormal. They're able to talk as if they could hear. When I've seen deaf actors speak, they speak with a slur. They speak with a, a deficiency in their speech. And we don't necessarily get that in this. We get full on sign language or we actually get conversation. But what the film does is it helps educate me to understand that if you can read lips and you can hear vibration and feel or feel vibration, you can actually articulate words and sounds and things like that. And so that took me a little bit of getting used to. And for someone who has a preconceived notion, it served both as an education, but also as a little bit of an awkward experience for me to watch this and kind of take some of that believability away, at least from a theatrical point of view. Now, that's really how it works, which I believe it does, because if you're dealing with the deaf community, the last thing you want to do is be inauthentic. So that's probably more of a faux pas on my part, but that would be the only thing that I had any kind of issues with. Yeah, I can see that. For me, Olivia Cook has been incredibly hit or miss as an actress, I will say. I like her in some stuff. Ready Player One sticks out, but some of the stuff that she's been praised critically for in more of her dramatic work has just not landed for me. I want to say she's in Thunderbirds, I think, and I didn't really care for that and that performance either. And this one, it just, I don't know if it's because she's standing up against Ahmed. I just did not feel like she was well cast. She never felt to me like the character of Lou was an accurate representation of the kind of bandmate that this person would be with and that this person would have and be in love with. And it just didn't fit. It just didn't feel right. She's not in the movie a lot either. And I, I would, I almost would say that could kind of be a negative, but also I guess that's kind of a positive because I didn't really want her to be there more, but then she comes back and it's kind of like, why did you just all of a sudden come back after being gone for like an hour and 15 minutes? So it's a strange addition of her character in there for me. It really all centers on Ahmed and, and his story and everything about him. And that's what I love about this. The pacing a little long, a little draggy at times for me. I understand that though. And again, I, you know, if you've seen this director's previous written work, The Place Beyond the Pines, I mean, it's very, I used the word earlier, meditative. That's how this film kind of goes. It's supposed to be something you stick with for a while and you kind of, you get in there and you feel it. There's a lot of slowness. There's a lot of stillness. Um, oh, dare I say quiet <laughs> at times. And, you know, that can be a bit of a struggle for some people when watching a straight drama. You might go into this thinking it's going to be about metal music because that's the way it's titled. And you look at this poster, guys, and it is Riz Ahmed rocking out on a drum set. He's all tatted up. He's ready to rock. That does not exist in this movie. That that scene is not those moments. I mean, yes, there's an opening scene where he's on the drum set, but like that idea of a band guy this is all about what happens after that happened that career is in the past now we're experiencing him moving from that career into this new world as he redefines who he is which i love as a theme but if you go into this and you think it's going to be about hard rock heavy metal music and you're thinking you're going to get that music you're going to be really let down so not necessarily a negative but kind of a little bit of a warning i would say for people as they approach this 
I definitely say feeling it 100% like the overall this is one of the better films of the year in my opinion so I don't know if it's top 10 for me yet but I'm right there with you Coles it's a great one and a really really strong directorial debut Coles yes you're feeling it obviously got anything else to say I agree with you about the poster. The poster had me um, fooled as well, because I came in thinking I was just going to see a constant um gradual deterioration. But literally, the rock scenes are just in the first, like, ten minutes, and then they're gone forever. What about you, Patrick? I'm definitely feeling it on this. All right, well, this will be out in select theaters on November the 20th, if you're lucky enough to have theaters that are still open in America. And it will be on Amazon Prime Video shortly after that on December the 4th for everyone to get a chance to take a look at. So be ready to put that on your radar and see that when it hits your TV screen at the very latest. Last but not least, we are going to talk about a movie called Fat Man. Unfortunately, Celeste didn't get to this one. It's my fault because I didn't tell him we were covering it on this episode. So whoops, my bad. Uh, sorry about that, bro. Um, but uh, Fat Man stars Mel Gibson, Walton Goggins, Marianne Jean-Baptiste, and Chance Hurstfield. It is written and directed by Isham and Ian Nelms, and it's got a heck of a plot. To save his declining business, Chris Kringle, a.k.a. Santa Claus, is forced into a partnership with the U.S. military. You know, we should almost just stop there. So that's a movie, like, in and of itself. It, it goes on. Making matters worse, Chris gets locked into a deadly battle of wits against a highly skilled assassin, played by Goggins, hired by a precocious 12-year-old after receiving a lump of coal in his stocking. Tis the season for Fat Man to get even in this action comedy that keeps on giving. This got on my radar because of the premise, obviously. It's bonkers. And I was like, I gotta see what this is all about. Patrick, what'd you think of it? First of all, I love Christmas movies. <laughs> and I love Christmas movies that are unconventional. This is essentially a mashup of Die Hard and Fargo, okay? And the the way in which we get to that premise is so surprising. Again, read the synopsis, but put it out of my mind until I just popped it in. In fact, I'd forgotten it was a Christmas movie. And listeners, if you've ever seen the movie Scrooged starring Bill Murray, there is a fake TV show that's being advertised on this network that he's a part of called The Night the Reindeer Died. And I feel like the premise of this movie was inspired by this. What would happen if we gave Santa a shotgun and we teamed him up with the military? This is a great, like, child's fantasy right here. And watching it play out with a cast like Mel Gibson and Walton Goggins, who, by the way, I've been a fan of off and on, but have kind of rekindled my my fandom with him as uh starring in the unicorn a cbs tv show that my wife and i started watching it's fantastic to see him in this kind of role and to see mel gibson in the role that he is i love the modern take on chris kringle i think it's creative when you can take santa claus and reinvent his mythology so many ways it's one of the reasons i love christmas movies that surround the origin of santa claus or an indirect version of santa claus like elf or santa claus is coming to town or whatever this does that as well. And then you add that element of action to it. And it's just so out of sight bonkers that you just kind of roll with it. And for me, it turned out to be a really, really fun ride. 
Well, yes, to everything you just said, yes. I was shocked by the way that it flows. <laughs> and I guess I didn't really read the whole premise, by the way, before I went into it. So the whole 12 year old angle actually was a surprise for me. And I was like, wow, like I knew that there was an assassin trying to kill Santa Claus, but I didn't know the reason until I actually watched the movie. Uh, and that I love the angle there. It's very intriguing. And like you said, it's creative. And a lot about the portrayal of Santa Claus and his elves, oddly, strangely, in a very weird way, made me feel and remember Arthur Christmas. OK, so I, it's just it just did. And I, it's nothing like that. Don't don't go into it thinking that because you'll be really shocked and scared. But it is incredibly interesting to watch this. And I personally, the things that stuck out to me, two of the things that I will mention, I liked that the military in this movie, who is used as someone, the military is something that Kringle ends up having to work with in order to keep funding his job, right? And that's as far as I'll go with that. But this story beat, in almost every other movie, the military is villainized. They treat people like crap. They come in, they try to take over. They do this. They, they are just, they act like completely out of sorts. The military is bad. This movie didn't portray the military that way. And I appreciated it. They weren't heartless. They weren't mean. They treat the elves and Santa with respect. They protect them, but they always carry the demeanor of the military, which I thought was really awesome. And I appreciated that as someone who's been in the military myself. And I really like the relationship between Chris and his wife, Ruth, uh, Mrs. Claus. It's a very caring relationship. It's part of the reason the Arthur Christmas storyline pops up in my head when I watch this. The way that she supports him from the back, the way that she is part of the team, the way that she casually shows up with a you know tray of cookies in the warehouse, offering him to the military or the elves or Santa and things like that. And the way in which she encourages him behind the scenes. She knows that he's got a job. She knows that he's got these stressors. He's struggling. And she's there for him and supportive at all times. And I just thought it was a really beautiful relationship. I, I got three. I liked Mel Gibson's performance. It's subtle. And I think he does a fantastic job. Many people might bash it because it's so darn just tonally like flat in a lot of ways, but I think that it works for this character in a big way. I think it's what we're supposed to get from this character. It's not supposed to be outlandish. People, this is not a Nicolas Cage crazy movie. That That's not what you need to expect. Um, and I'm actually going to transition into one of my dislikes, Patrick, because I would say the inconsistent tone can be a problem. The movie sometimes doesn't know if it wants to be this fully serious, realistic within reason, realistic retelling or of this assassination attempt and revenge story, or if it wants to be a cartoony and fantastical black comedy, it vacillates between those two in scenes. And it can be like, ah, which way are we going? Are we going the ha 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 way where Walter Goggins is really getting, you know, mustache twirly, or are we getting the more sensitive backstory for Goggins character and why he also is upset with Santa Claus and like a, a really, you know, distinct, you know, orchestral score in the background that like makes you feel like you're getting connected to the character. It's, it's tugging at me back and forth. And that kind of carries on throughout the film. And I wouldn't say this is a dislike, but the movie never goes, like I said, full Nick Cage. You're never going to get 
quite the same scene that you mentioned, Patrick, that Scrooged moment. Like, that's a lot more bloody and crazy and wacky than you're going to see in this. You don't see a full-on bloody thing. Like, you might think the trailers are building towards this incredibly graphic, violent movie. It's not ever like that. It's much more, actually, along the lines of, like, a Die Hard or Die Hard 2. <laughs> People getting shot in the snow is what I would think of. Um, and so that was kind of some of the things that didn't work as well for me. What about you? Well, I, I agree with the with the tonal shift. And where I think the other frustration that I have is having finished Uncharted 4, I talked to you about the fact that it pays this really great homage to previous entries as well as to the action-adventure genre through some Goonies in there, some Indiana Jones. But it does it in a way that makes it feel like it's doing just that, paying homage to it, as opposed to borrowing. And I feel like, in some ways, this movie borrows more than it pays an homage to something like Scrooged or to Die Hard. And to me, I think that feels a bit like a cheat. Like, the premise is original, and now that we've got an original premise, we can just piecemeal this thing together and allow the audience to sort of enjoy whatever it is that we put on screen. So for me, that tonal shift, I think, took away a lot of my enjoyment of it because the moment I was like, okay, this feels kind of safe, then you have Walton Goggins, you know, F, you know dropping F-bombs here. And I knew it's an R-rated movie, so that's going to happen. But in all honesty, it's a hard sell to do drama comedy that way when you're dealing with subject matter that is Chris Kringle, Santa Claus. That's just difficult to do. You either go one way or the other, like you said, Aaron. And because of that indecisiveness, along with feeling more borrowed than inspired by, those are kind of my turnoffs as well. All right. Well, overall, are you feeling it more good than bad or not? Yeah, I would say it's a good one-time watch. This is not going to be one that's on repeat at my house just because that's way too much violence for the Christmas season for me. But I will say that there were moments that I laughed out loud. Uh, like you, I think Mel Gibson is great in this as a as a updated version of Chris Kringle. And I think it's worth at least one watch for those that are loving the things like <laughs> The Night the Reindeer Died and Die Hard. Cosign. 100% cosign. I agree. I think that it is a fun one-time watch, one I would definitely recommend for people that are interested in the premise. I think that they'll have a good time with it. And honestly, I think it's a movie that, you know, I don't always think that our previews, our reactions that we give to films or our reviews are always helpful. I, sometimes I think people are better served just to not listen to us. And that's obviously a personal choice, but sometimes it's better to go into a movie really just completely fresh. I think knowing what you're going to get is a good thing in this case. I think it will help you to enjoy it more because you're not expecting it to be something much like we said with Sound of Metal. If you go in expecting something that you don't get, it's going to be a lot more jarring when you get a different tone of film. But just understand that there's a little more drama to this than you might expect, and you've got those you know, juggling tones going on, and most of it is a lot of fun. I laughed out loud quite a bit. I smiled. Um, my heartstrings were tugged by the Chris and Ruth relationship and, and the relationship with Santa and his elves as well, so uh, definitely feeling it. This one is in select theaters now, and it will also be on demand and on digital beginning November the 24th for all to see.
Gimli says goodbye, everybody. I hope you heard that. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me for these reviews. This was great. Always is fun. I appreciate it. Until next time, listeners, keep watching movies. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places, and I'd love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter, but be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.